Hello and welcome to the European Football Show on the World Football Index. Um, as ever, I'm your host, Alan Feely, coming to you from Seville in the south of Spain. And I'm joined today by three fantastic guests from different parts of Europe. Uh, in Germany, in Hessen, Germany, uh, we have Jasmine Baba. How are you, Jasmine? It's been a very eventful week for you, both on and off the pitch. Yeah, I got engaged over the weekend, so that's a lot better than what Arsenal are doing. And <laughs> I guess. So, yeah, actually better off the pitch than on it. Congratulations, uh, for sure. But, uh, John, how are you getting on out in the west of Ireland in Galway? Never better. Full of the joys of the Barbers opening in Ireland today, and I'm booked in for Wednesday, so it's going to be emotional for me. Fade City coming oh, up. All day, all day. Uh, and you, and how are you in the Spanish capital, you and McTeer? Um, were you participating in the craziness that took place in the streets of Madrid on Saturday evening when the state of alarm ended, or were you more sensible? No, it was quite a mild weekend, watched some football, didn't get engaged, I had a beer, but <laughs> in a crowd of a thousand people just in a bar, like, thankfully we've been able to do here for a few weeks, so I don't really know why everyone had to go so crazy, because um, for Madrid, not that much really changed when uh, the rules changed, so no, fairly mild weekend with um, yeah a couple of big games in Spain, of course, in the, the top four playing amongst each other, and um, yeah, plenty to talk about. Absolutely, loads to be, loads to talk about. Um, but let's begin with the Champions League and Europa League fixtures. So on Tuesday night was a big one: uh, Manchester City beating PSG two 0 to advance um, on aggregate. Uh, fantastic game. I found really high quality stuff. Uh, two City players that struck me as being especially uh, good on the night were Phil Foden and Ruben Diaz. Um, what did you make of this game, John? Uh, were you impressed by City and were you disappointed by PSG? Yeah, I, I was somewhat disappointed by PSG, but my main takeaway was how impressive Man City were and how untypically Pep Guardiola they were, especially in the latter stages of um, of a knockout European competition. I thought they were very defensively solid and committed. There were so many times where they made last gas black blocks in the box and the players were hugging each other and they looked so... They looked so much like they actually enjoyed defending, which was probably not something that you could have leveled at the squad in any of the previous seasons up to this one. Um, at times, they weren't afraid to sit back and play in a more counter-attacking shape in a 4-4-2 kind of a block, which is something, again, that we wouldn't ordinarily associate with Pep Guardiola or Man City. So they were mightily impressive. If if in the first leg they were maybe a bit fortunate to come away with a 2-1 victory, well, in this instance, they were... They were massively, massively deserving to go through. I thought, like you mentioned, Phil Foden was brilliant. I thought, again, Riyad Mahrez was very good. And yeah, Ruben Diaz, he, he's been such a catalyst for their improvement this season. And, you know, John Stones has struggled for the most part of his tenure at Manchester City. But now, beside Diaz, he looks so much more composed and so much more comfortable. And what Diaz really brings is a leadership and a communicational skill that they've probably lacked since uh, Vincent Company left the club. So he's brought some of that back as well as his own, you know, his own ability in the air and his uh, and his really impressive reading of the game. So in all, they really deserve to go through. Uh, I thought really the stuffing was knocked out of PSG in uh, in the first leg and that they were they were fairly peripheral for the entirety of the game. It was almost like they were playing a 10 men for uh, for a lot of stages with Icardi. He uh, 
you know, outside of being a penalty box poacher, he, he doesn't really offer a whole lot in the build-up. He's kind of a player like maybe looking back a few years like like a people in Zaggy where, you know, if he's not scoring, he's more or less not really doing anything. So I felt like uh, P- PSG didn't really have a mechanism to get Neymar into the game. And obviously Mbappe didn't play, which also kind of neutered the counter-attacking threat. And uh, I think that frustration boiled over when you saw that piece of idiocy from uh, Angel Di Maria which is also their second uh, red card in in two games after uh, Idrissa Ganagay got sent off in the first one. So all in all, Manchester City were really deserving to win. And I know they lost to Chelsea in uh, on the, in this weekend in the Premier League with a heavily rotated team, in fairness. But I think they showed elements in that, in that PSG second leg, which would really lend itself well to playing Chelsea in the final, i.e. that ability to play in maybe a more compact, deeper sitting shape and play and not always want to possession and to sometimes maybe play in a more counter-attacking way. Absolutely. How would you find the game, Jasmine? Um, would you agree with John about the importance of Ruben Diaz? I mean, some have compared his signing to Virgil van Dijk signing for Liverpool back in the winter of 2018, I think it was. Or 2017, sorry. Uh, do you think it's of similar importance? And um, how good do you think he is? No, I think those comparisons are pretty spot on, to be honest. Um He's absolutely flourished in the Man City team. Um, we've kind of seen it, but is it only two goals they've conceded in the Champions League? Or some, just something crazy like that. It, you can see his quality. He works well in the team and given the, the role that Pep Guardiola wants him to do. But I would also say, without Alexander Zinchenko, that team looks kind of unbalanced. Um, Cancelo does a wonderful job in that team as well, but there are certain uh, teams that they face where Zinchenko just makes everything like more fluid for them. And I think he's been one of those, maybe not underrated, but just kind of undersung players in that Manchester City team, which is so full of quality. Um, I, I, I think because of other results, especially against Chelsea, let's, um, and I'm sure we'll touch on it in uh, later on. But I just wonder if he there'll be some nagging doubts in Pep Guardiola's head coming into the final. Absolutely. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Ewan, but I think you were enjoying some other uh, live sport that when that match was going on, right, on Tuesday evening. Yeah, I was at the at the tennis um, when this game was on, which was which was good fun. Good to go and see some tennis, and then you realise, oh wait, that's on the Champions League night. But um, <laughs> so yeah, when I watched it, I already knew how it went. I knew that um, PSG were about to lose the plot, so I was looking out for for that, and maybe overjudging any sign of frustration in the first ten minutes when there's a throw in, because um, I think <laughs> that they just completely melted down. So. I guess I watched it with a different perspective, but equally just um, impressed with with the way Man City went about it. And I guess it's interesting just looking at, at PSG didn't get a single shot on target, partly because of what Man City did. But like when PSG have got to this point in the Champions League, it's been the away games where they've just really been clinical. Um, at the Camp Nou, I mean, for a lot of that game, it was fairly even. And then Mbappe just bam, 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 got his hat-trick. Moise Keane as well and then obviously the game they played in the snow in Munich I mean when you looked at all the stats the number of shots that Bayern had compared to PSG it was just they were very clinical and in this one maybe they were a bit unlucky that they just uh, 
their luck ran out a little bit. Of course, there's a different dynamic as well, where um, in the previous rounds, the away leg was the first one. Um, we always talk about how having the second leg at home can be advantageous. In pandemic times, that's a, that's a very different uh, scenario, different dynamics. But I think for PSG, they've quite enjoyed having the away leg first to be able to go there and just try a little bit, not worry too much about winning on the night, just trying to get their away goals. Having had the first leg at home this time and having lost it, uh, I guess they had to go into into the game with a very different mentality. And City, of course, knew as well that they didn't necessarily have to go and, and score too many more. So um, different dynamics and yeah, a little bit shocking when you consider all the talent PSG have, the way they've been so clinical up to now that they couldn't get a single shot on target in this second leg. Absolutely. A couple of Spanish links to PSG uh, this season, especially with, you know, Kylian Mbappe being linked to Madrid, uh, Neymar being linked to Barcelona, obviously signed new contracts at the weekend, reports in Mundo Deportivo and Diario Sport, uh, referencing that Barcelona feel a bit used by him, that he kind of maybe uh, negotiated with them and kind of gave them an idea that he'd come back to Catalonia in order to drive up the price that he earned from PSG. And then also, of course, PSG's mooted pursuit of Lionel Messi. Do you think that uh, Neymar re-signing with the club until 2025 has maybe increased the possibility that Mbappe could be on his way to Madrid this summer? Especially given the, we'll, we'll discuss it more later, but the failure of Madrid in Europe this season. No, not necessarily. I mean, I think they're, they're two very separate cases. They'll always be linked because they're the two forwards of PSG because they arrived at the same time, because their contracts were expiring at the same time next summer. Um, but I do think they're very different cases because um, you, st- you have to remember they're still at very different stages of their of their career. This is Neymar's you know third big contract um, for Mbappe. This is just a second. So um, yeah, I think PSG all along have treated them as two different things. Uh, I don't think we were ever going to see a situation where they would both announce that they were both renewing, both leaving, doing whatever um, within a short space of time. I think. Um, maybe Neymar was the priority they've been able to get that out of the way and then now can see what happens with Mbappe but I don't actually think it's too linked obviously the Messi um, the PSG rumours that is more linked because you can't have all three of them but I don't think Neymar staying necessarily means that Mbappe will or won't I don't think it influences his point of view or PSG's point of view too much Absolutely. Um, in the other semi-final, Chelsea beat Real Madrid 2-0 at Stamford Bridge, following on from the 1-1 draw at Valdebebas last week. Um, very assured performance from Chelsea, Jasmine. Uh, they really didn't get out of second gear, did they? And kind of peppered Madrid's goal with efforts. Uh, they didn't maybe get the goal, uh, the, the scoreline they could have deserved maybe, but they got the job done in the end. Yeah, I think it was... When... Timo Werner of all people score after 28 minutes, you kind of think, oh, you know, the job's done. And to be fair, from what I can remember of the match, Real Madrid just kept most of the possession and they looked kind of lackluster. We didn't really get a proper fight from them. I was going through some of the statistics and it said that they had five shots on goal, but Apart from a, a, maybe two Benzema saves, I couldn't remember anything else of like that was noteworthy. So yeah, Chelsea, despite having less than forty percent of the possession, really just kind of nullified anything that they did. Um, I think Tuchel was a little bit mad about some of the chances that they did waste. Um, Werner 
getting into the space behind the back line, especially with his suit so often and basically not having as much clinical strength that people expect him to to finish those off. He could have been more. Um, but yeah, they're on an amazing form. I said they were probably third best after Bayern Munich and Man City quite a while ago. And, you know, they've played like Champions League finalists. Um, and in the end, they just held Real Madrid rather quietly. Absolutely. Um, you When you were at the first leg in Valdebebas uh, and you obviously followed the second leg as well very closely um, for Marca, uh, what did you make of this whole tie? I mean, like for me, I was shocked when I saw that Ramos, Mendy and Hazard were all starting uh, in London. I mean, n- neither of the three have played sufficient minutes to warrant a starting spot, you would imagine. Um, and I found in the second leg, especially Madrid, very, very jaded, very stretched, very off the pace. Didn't you think so? Yeah, I mean, biggest difference with the second leg was um, it looked far less rainy. Um, not a monsoon in that one. Um, but yeah, Zidane's um, starting lineup, I think, has been the main criticism of Zidane from from that second leg. Uh, putting Vinicius as a right wing back, which Zidane, after the game and press conference, said that Vinicius has played there a few times before, um, maybe a hundred minutes there. Um, not really um, as if he's played there often and certainly not recently. The last time he did was against Hitafi. And no offence to Hitafi, but Hitafi and Chelsea are two different things. So that was that was a bit strange, but I guess that was to accommodate Hazard. And I can understand that, you know. Um, he'd come on as a substitute the previous couple of games. He'd shown flashes of something. You have to go and score a goal there. It's his former team. Zidane is very about this kind of um, almost sentimentality in the Champions League, you know. Um, he'll play players against their former clubs, maybe thinking that that gives an edge. Um, even in the first leg, he put on R- Rodrigo for like the last two minutes. And you're thinking, why is he doing that, putting him on for Benzema? Well, because Rodrigo's got a knack of scoring in the Champions League and not La Liga. Zidane is quite um, almost superstitious in that way, and often it works. So it made sense that Hazard would start, but I don't think that was the best way to accommodate him into the team. Maybe you... Uh, you put Vinicius on the left where he'd been doing so well, he'd earned the right, I think, to be there starting on the left because he'd helped bring them to this point by playing so well against Atalanta and Liverpool. And maybe Hazard's the one you asked to play in a different role, maybe in a, in a 4-3-3. That's fair enough. Zidane tried it. It didn't quite work. What was strange was that he didn't really make any adjustments until mm, quite deep into the second half. And there was a sort of narrative of, well, Real Madrid had a couple of chances in the first half and... Um, it wasn't going too badly. But the thing is that once Chelsea scored the goal, they then really didn't have to go in search of much more. They could really adopt a slingshot approach, sit back and, and hit in the counter. And to be fair to Tuchel, he went out, I think, at the start of the game to get a second goal. He wasn't playing for a nil-nil by any means. But once they got the one nil, then Chelsea in the second half could sit back a bit more. And Real Madrid's approach wasn't going to work against so many bodies who just had more energy and more legs than they seemed to have. So, yeah, Zidane's been been questioned. But, of course, Hazard, because he laughed at a joke afterwards, um, has actually really helped Zidane more than he ever has on the pitch because it deflected a lot of the attention <laughs> away from, from Zidane's starting lineup and then uh, failure to really change anything until it was too late. 
Yeah, I think yours was the first tweet uh, that almost broke the laughing scene, I think it was. Um, well, so I was watching the, the game on, on the TV <laughs> and, you know, we're sort of looking at uh, just the reactions of the players going off and it just caught my eye that Hazard was there talking to some Chelsea players. Okay, and then he just burst out laughing at some... <laughs> I don't know what the joke is. I really hope we can find out at some point, put it in all our Christmas crackers. But uh, I just thought, oh, no, that's not going to go down well. And, of course, looking back there, <laughs> it was leading Chiringuito and the entire world found out what what, uh, what Chiringuito is. Remarkable television, genuinely. If you haven't seen the clip, I, I'd implore you to go look at it. Like, I mean, do you think that... Like, obviously, you know, news coming after that maybe Hazard's days have been numbered. I mean, I think the feeling seems to be that Zidane is his backer, not Florentino. Like, Florentino, for instance, is backing Vinicius. That's his kind of player. Whereas Zidane is very much the guy pushing Hazard. And should Zidane leave, as has been mooted, then Hazard could really find himself with very little protection at Madrid, you could say. But do you think that this laughing incident, obviously it's not the you know, a contributing factor to any decision on his future. That's his on pitch performance. But do you think it could be almost like a lightning rod and kind of a kind of a you know the straw that broke the camel's back in many ways? Sort of, but at the same time maybe not necessarily something that uh, marks a turning point, but something that kind of just adds to a sense of of things not going well for him. A bit like all of the things with with Bale. If you actually sit a Real Madrid fan down, your most anti Bale Real Madrid fan and say, Why don't you like this guy? Each of the arguments they'll give you, they all themselves know is not actually such a big deal. Okay, he likes golf. He's injured. He likes playing for Wales more than Real Madrid. All of these things are not particularly massive, but it's an accumulation of these things. And I think for Hazard, this is not going to be something that that is a that is a turning point, but something that is that certainly contributes to to the other things like arriving overweight, being injured often, and maybe not doing everything he can to come back in peak fitness. Um, I guess the, the saving grace is that there's no fans in, in the Bernabeu just now because they're, well, not at the Bernabeu because he came on against uh, Sevilla on Sunday night and one of his first touches was to control the ball and he missed it and they went out for a throw-in. If that's at the Bernabeu, the whistles are deafening uh, and then you really do have a situation on your hands. At least the fans aren't necessarily there. And I think just to finish on Hazard, that that's kind of part of it is... You know, he doesn't have a relationship with the Real Madrid fans yet because he's been injured so much. There was a pandemic. If you look at how many goals he scored, it's so few goals um, that he scored anyway, about half a dozen. But I think it's only maybe one, maybe two goals that he scored in the Bernabeu in front of a packed home crowd. He's not had that connection with the fan base yet like every other player has been able to, to, to enjoy at some point. So it makes sense that um, he's not necessarily thinking about what the fans will think watching on from home when he laughs at uh, whatever the joke was. Yeah, what did you make of the joke, uh, John? The, the joke of Kurtzuma? Uh, do you reckon it was a storm in the key- teacup, the reaction afterwards, or do you reckon that the Madrid fans have a right to be disappointed of such kind of a comprehensive spanking, really, than Chelsea? I think it's a bit of a storm in a, key- in a teacup. It reminds me of the time when Liverpool played Real Madrid in the Champions League in 2014-15 and Mario Balotelli, who was playing for Liverpool at the time, swapped jerseys at one of the Real Madrid players at halftime and then the local media absolutely tore him to shreds. I think it might have been actually the front page of the Liverpool Echo imploring him to apologise to club's fans. But like patently, that's nonsense because that kind of thing goes on all the time. A lot of these players admire each other 
a lot of them are friends. And I think sometimes it suits a club or a fan base or a coach to have a patsy to put all the blame on and to deflect attention away from the fa- from the failings of, of the team in the particular tie. So I think it very much suited uh, suited Zidane, like Ewan said, to uh, to kind of have that played out in the media um, because fundamentally I think he uh, he got a lot of things wrong over the course of the two of the two legs, particularly the fact that I think he was almost too adaptable. I mean, I've, I've sang his praises so often in this podcast saying how in-game he's fantastic tactically, but I think he kind of really took a lot away from his Real Madrid attack in in, in a way to try and match up to, che- to Chelsea playing that back three that maybe a lot of his players aren't quite accustomed to. So in, in, in that regard, I think uh, he came out second best in the managerial duel, so to speak. But I guess if it wasn't Hazard as well, and if it was a player who has been extremely successful over the course of their Real Madrid career, be it like, say, uh, Karim Benzema, then the reaction might have been a bit different. But the TV thing was absolutely hilarious. It reminded me of peak RTE, where the pundits would just be pure shooting from the hip and it wouldn't be vested in any way, shape or form. And they would be saying often contradictory things, the things they said five minutes ago, but it would just be hilarious and totally over the top. And uh, I think that's just part and parcel of football fandom. And I found it really funny, but I do find the whole thing, you know, a bit way over the top. That's not why Real Madrid lost. Yeah, no, I know what you mean, but I think that when you are, you know, I think it's the most expensive signing you've ever made before, 100 million before uh, you include variables. And then also the fact, as you mentioned, he arrived seven kilos overweight, He's contributed, I think it's four goals in La Liga. Um, and like I think you would never in a million years see Sergio Ramos, Jared Pique, Lionel Messi or Cristiano Ronaldo laughing and joking with an ex-teammate after they got spanked in the Champions League semi-final. I just think you'd never see it in a million years, you know. But I guess each player has different personalities and stuff. And I don't think Hazard's personality is, is that, that type, that kind of, you know, serial winner. But uh, anyway, moving on. Uh, Jasmine. Uh, what do you make of the follow-up to Chelsea's uh, win against Madrid? They went to City in one-two-one. Uh, Sergio Aguero missed a pretty atrocious Penenka. Uh, what do you make of this game? What do you make of this penalty specifically? Oh, it was awful, wasn't it? It's not the way you kind of want to go out from Man City if you know that you're leaving that season. Um, they just need one win to seal the title, and it looks like it's just never going to come. Um, but it, I was really impressed by how Chelsea adapted, especially after Christiansen went um, off injured. So it, it just kind of, especially picking in Kurt Zuma, which I've been less than impressed with, to have that not really struggle, make them struggle, is a testament of what Tuchel's doing at Chelsea. Um I think there were a few calls that were a little bit questionable, but if you look at the data from it, um, Chelsea had more shots on goal, um, more possession. They were just a little bit more clinical, which is weird when what I said about Werner before. And if you have Werner leading the line, um, it sometimes isn't going to go your way. Um, I think it was a really good performance from Gilmore and Kante. They linked up well. Kante especially, you can see how valuable he is. I mean, we know Kante is one of the best midfielders, but Tuchel absolutely loves playing him in no matter what partnership. They always look a little bit unbalanced when Kante doesn't play. I think 
actually I will get disagreed with with quite a few people, but the Jorginho Kante double pivot is, I think, one of his best balancing partnerships in that Chelsea team. Um, I'm sure that when it for Man City will come, it. But I, again, I do think Pep Guardiola is going to be thinking this is twice I've faced him recently and I've lost two times. And with that final coming up, we all know that Pep can make weird decisions. And I wonder if he's, he's going to make a weird one again. Um, it, I, I didn't understand. I mean, they were good enough to beat Chelsea, but they just didn't. And I think that is what's going to be sticking in his mind. They, they were just looked a little bit wasteful, looked a little bit... I'm fresh. Um, also, that does kind of prove my point about Zinchenko not starting and, and Ake starting in a kind of different format. I think it was just a little bit too different this time. But do you think that part of that maybe was because Guardiola knew that if he played his strongest 11 and they lost again, then it would get into their heads a bit. Whereas if he made some changes, then they can say, OK, we lost, but we haven't played our strongest 11 yet. And, you know, also, I guess the difference between the two teams is so slight, like they're very, very competitive. It's highly unlikely, I would say, that Chelsea are going to win three in the bounce against them. Do you, do you know what I mean? Like, so it's like, I don't know. I think it's like really more 50-50 than ever going into the final, I think, really. Um, and on Aguero as well, I thought that there was a real desperation about him. Like, I mean, when Sterling scored the first goal, or the only goal, sorry, for a City, like he almost took it off Aguero's toes. I think Aguero was desperate to kind of score and put an end to his uh, City career with some sort of dignity, you know, because it's been a tough season for him for sure. But um, but anyway, yeah. Uh, going on to the other semi-finals performance uh, this weekend, you and uh, Madrid played Sevilla last night in Valdebebas. Cracking game, uh, two all. Uh, a goal and assist from Ivan Rakitic. Uh, Madrid got it later on thanks to a Tony Cruz sh- shot that was deflected off of Eden Hazard. Uh, what did you make of this game? What did you make of its, of its repercussions for the title race? Yeah, I mean, this game is all centred around the penalty moment incident, which is maybe the most incredible thing I've ever seen. This is um, basically severe attack and have a cross into the into the box. Militao handballs it. The referee says nothing. Real Madrid break up the other end. Uh, Benzema gets taken down by the keeper it's even clearer and Real Madrid have a penalty but he's called to the VAR monitor to have a look and he comes back out and it's you know he's given a penalty um, that's that's a given it's just <laughs> which side is it to it's like the, it's almost like he's coming out almost like to do the sort of thumbs up thumbs down coliseum gesture but it's going to be with uh, doing a VAR sign and then pointing to one of the penalty areas. And it was just thrilling drama because, you know, obviously he's there, he's made his decision. You really don't know what um, he's going to do. I just kind of wish it had been Matteo Lajos in charge because he might have, um, I don't know, maybe sent us all to an ad break or something to add even more drama before deciding. But um, Martinez Munuera was quite, quite quick to just point to the Sevilla penalty area, which I think was the right decision it was compared to some of the handball penalties we get seen this is one of the, the clearer ones it's very much not natural position very away from the body clearly hits the ball uh, so Sevilla get the penalty Rakitic is, is scoring it which I mean if you're a Real Madrid fan and you um, looked away for a couple minutes um, after the penalty award you might be a bit confused but Sevilla went up and then of course as you mentioned that cruise shot that 
went in off hazard and technically counts as a hazard goal, which is uh, just more more drama, more narrative from the football gods of this game. It was it was a great watch, and it means it's it's all square in La Liga because the day before we had Barcelona and Atletico drawing, and Real Madrid came into this game knowing that if they win their final four matches, they win La Liga. Uh, they couldn't do it. It's back in Atletico Madrid's hands, and credit to Sevilla, they started really well. And I guess it's also a, uh, part of it is just Real Madrid had so many absences, so many players out injured, um, so many players, of course, knackered after their their midweek game. So um, this was always a potential uh, slip up opportunity for Real Madrid. Sevilla, a very good team, um, to get the draw that makes the, the title race well as you were going into the weekend. It was funny watching Lapetegui uh, disappearing into the director's box to, for the penalty. He couldn't watch it apparently. Very. Oh yeah, he said after the game, they asked, him about, they asked him about the penalty and he did the classic manager's uh, response of, oh, I didn't really see it at the time. And it's like, but you were, you were suspended, you were in the box, there's literally a TV there. <laughs> like, it's that excuse of, oh, I didn't see it. You, the only way you were seeing most of this game was looking at the monitor from up in that box. So um, he eventually said that, yeah, he thought it was a penalty. And Zidane said that he... Uh, thinks if it could be, then Real Madrid were due a penalty or two as well, which is strange because Zidane almost never complains about the referees. And he even said that. He said, you know, uh, verbatim, I don't usually do this, but tonight I'm I'm annoyed. And uh, yeah, plenty of drama. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we'll touch on Barca Atleticos shortly, but just on Madrid's future. I mean, like, regarding the title race, I don't think any side is going to win their last three games. I think there's going to be points dropped uh, by all of the three teams who are still kind of really in the fight. A um, couple of absences. I mean, obviously, Hazard didn't start the game. Sergio Ramos looks like he could have played his last game for the club. Uh, as we mentioned, Zidane's future is kind of up in the air. Like, what do you make of this Madrid team going to the final stretch? Do you think that um, Ramos will be there next season? Or do you think he could maybe go back to Sevilla, as has been floated down here? It's been a kind of uh, rumours that have been, have been intensifying in recent times. Apparently, the club are open to him coming back. And I think while his priority is to stay at Madrid, he'd also be open to reunion, potentially, uh, given his wife specifically wants to stay in Spain. Um, Zidane's future has been talked about, being to Juventus in recent times, also the French national team. A uh, big transfer window coming up. Like, what do you make of Zidane, I mean, Madrid coming into the summer? Yeah, well, I mean, just firstly on on your question on the final stretch of the season, it's going to be tough for for Real Madrid. I think I do think I could see Barcelona winning winning out. I could see Atletico winning out. Real Madrid, I actually find it harder to see that because they have tougher fixtures and because they have so many absences. This right now, this moment in time, for example, their medical report has seven names on it, and they're all defenders. They basically have no backline. And to make things complicated for them, they can call up B-team players, but the B-team have their promotion playoffs to try and get up to the Segunda starting this week. So um, it's a balancing act there of how much do you want to uh, hurt the B-team's chances of getting promotion into the professional second division, which is a big deal um, to fill the spaces where you literally don't have defenders left. Fede Valverde can fill in, but there's only one Fede Valverde. You can't do, you can't do everything Going to the summer, I mean, yeah, I'm sure Sevilla would love to have Ramos back. I mean, I'd love them to come and, and sign for St. Martin in Scotland. Many clubs would love to have Ramos. I don't think Ramos at this stage is necessarily ready to go to Sevilla. Uh, to I don't know. I think he, he wants to either stay at Real Madrid or go to another huge club where he can earn big money because that seems to be the sticking point 
and challenge for for Champions League and things like that. And then Zidane, Zidane, I don't even know if Zidane knows what he wants to do. Zidane is a difficult person to read at the best of times. And this question has been rumbling on in press conferences for a while now. And um, he's got to the point where he's he's just not answering these questions anymore, I think. Um, I don't know if it depends on how they do in the league. I think Real Madrid are not going to move on from Zidane, even if they don't win the league. They know how uh, terrible a situation they were in with Solari when Zidane came back and how he's improved them. They've, uh, they've won a the league. They're challenging for another. They've um, made made the semi-finals of the Champions League again, even if they had a bit of luck with the draw. I think I think they're happy with Zidane. It's just if he wants to stay, if he gets a bit fed up, if he um, feels like he needs a change, because that's what happened last time. It was it was burnout, more or less. So, um, yeah, who knows about Zidane? Ramos, neither. It's um, I think it's true when they say they're focusing on one game at a time, focusing on the rest of the season, focusing on finishing the league strong. It's a cliche, but I think it's true at least. Um, I mean, it is only three weeks. Then we can think about all the futures. Yeah, I think Lucas, Vaz- Lucas Vasquez said that Zidane's been telling him this is the last time we'll all be together like this. And there's definitely a bit of a last dance feel to it, the way they're kind of staggering towards the finish line. But uh, anyway, we'll see. It's sure to be an interesting summer no matter what. Uh, John, I saw you tweet again um, that every United game is the same at the weekends. I know this is a topic we've talked about before. And, I mean, they beat Villa 3-1 after beat, losing to Roma 3-2 in Italy, but winning the tie outright. Uh, do you feel like United are almost returning to that kind of ominously predictable kind of, you know, not a behemoth, but that kind of club that's just winning games when they need to? Yeah, I mean, lots of people have been very critical of Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, no more than myself in the past. But in fairness to him, he has really, like, found kind of found upon a system and a style that really suits the players at his disposal. Like, for example, playing Paul Pogba more to the left-hand side kind of mitigates away from the fact that sometimes he can be caught he can be caught wanting in a defensive sense in the centre of midfield. And, you know, he's found a way to incorporate all those players, including Bruno Fernandes and Rashford, into the one team. And as a collective, they've been, they've been quite good for the most part of the season. They're still, though, a team that they often kind of leave you wanting more because... They, they can be very good in moments, but it's rarely a 90-minute performance tied together. But I guess the counter-argument to that is that they don't need to play well for an entire 90 minutes. They have so much firepower that all it takes is even only a few half openings and they can make significant hay. And now they have the added element of bringing Cavani off the bench. And I think in all my time watching the Premier League, he's up there with the strikers who have had the best movements. Just just the way he manipulates defenders and the way he drags people into areas they want don't want to go and the way he exploits space is absolutely brilliant. And, you know, there was no better instance of it than his header against Villa on Sunday where he completely he completely outfoxes, I think, is Ezri Kansa who's marking him and he just he delicately guides a header into the bottom corner, and he's been a, he's been a really solid addition to their squad this season. Probably the best sign they've made since Bruno Fernandez. But yeah, most of their games do follow the same pattern, i.e. they fall behind and then they manage to wrestle their way back into the game and they, they finish quite strongly. So uh, there kind of feels like um, inevitability, an inevitability about them this season, like you say. It'll be interesting to see whether it carries over next season in, a, in inverted commas normal season because as it is, United are one of, one of the clubs in the Premier League with the best injury record. I think they're their third least squad afflicted by injuries this season. So let's see next season when they're playing more clubs with a with a fuller deck of cards whether or not they can maintain 
this level. Um, and that will be interesting to see them in the Europa League final. I think certainly they they definitely have the better personnel uh, than Villarreal. But Villarreal showed against Arsenal that they can play in quite a disciplined and defensive manner and that they can really nullify a team's attacking threats. So it'll be an interesting style clash in the Europa League final. But yeah, like credit to Solskjaer, he really, really has improved them. But we'll see now whether the loss of Harry Maguire and how long that's going to be for it will be uh, kind of ruinous for them because he's been... He's, he's been good for them this season. He's played every single minute of Premier League football up until coming off at the weekend with an injury, which is a remarkable feat when you consider how you know physically intense and draining and compacted this season has been. Absolutely, yeah. Interesting too how they'll go in the summer, how heavily they recruit. I think that they could definitely make some big moves this summer. They're well-placed to do so, I think, compared to some other clubs. But uh, we'll see, I'm sure. Uh, Jasmine, uh, John mentioned it briefly there, uh, how... Villarreal are in the final at Arsenal's expense. I mean, it's the game that you were dreading all season, playing Unai Emery uh, back in London. Uh, it, it was far from a glorious spectacle, nil all. Uh, not a good moment for Arsenal and Mikel Arteta, the whole Mikel Arteta project, is it? No, I. Uh, what can you say if you only have one shot on target against Villarreal? Um like everything was riding on that game and they were a bit unfortunate with uh, Granite Xhaka getting injured in the warm-up and I firmly believe that although not the best player and the most talented player that Granite Xhaka holds this monumental cog in the Arsenal system for whatever reason he just helps the double pivot and the defence just get connected to the attack. There are times where that hasn't worked, but a really astonishing stat, I don't know if I've said it on this podcast before, but um, the last time Arsenal won an away game without Granit Xhaka was three months before they signed Granit Xhaka. And that record had only... It was only broken in this season's game against Man United at Old Trafford, where we won 1-0 from an Aubameyang penalty, but we did not create a single thing. Um, he's just become a, a monumental key player for Arsenal. And when he is missing, which I'm sure, I, I'm sure we. I can, let me just check the lineups. Yeah. Um, when he was supposed to be playing, it was supposed to be a 4-1-4-1, which Arteta still um, went with. But as soon as Xhaka got injured, that just completely fell apart. And even Xhaka in the left-back position hadn't connect. When Sabios and Thomas Partey were playing in the double pivot, it just hadn't connect properly to the front three. Um, and we kind of saw that without him on on Thursday against Villarreal. Um, but it was even worse because you obviously had this kind of, not un, I wouldn't say he was unfit, Kieran Tierney, but he just did need a few more minutes than being dumped into a semi second leg of a semi-final. Um, I think we looked better with Tierney than we have looked at Jack in the left back, but it's also his constant management and swapping of the centre-backs. I think if you're building up from a back four, Gabriel has been a lot better with either hold, pretty much holding by his side. Um, Bellerin 
keeps on getting swapped out for Chambers. There hasn't been a consistent run of games. I'm not sure why he wanted to play the 4-1-4-1 on that night when we haven't really seen it at all. Um, and I'm not impressed with the likes of Pepe. We There's so many things going wrong at Arsenal and I, they're not completely Arteta's to blame. Um, you've got what sounds like a medical department in crisis. They haven't been able to keep up the... Um, just keep players fit this season. I know COVID and the amount of games players had have it has taken its toll on players, but compared to anyone else in the league, they don't seem to have the problems we have at the moment. Uh, we've also got like mismanagement in um, recruiting. Uh, as I said, there's cases to be have where we paid 17 million for Pepe and 40, 50 millions for, for Thomas Party when they haven't gelled or they weren't the players that we necessarily needed. Um, we were left without a left back and no backup for the left back because um, Kolasinac wanted to go to Schalke and there was just no time to get in a left back. Um, so all of these problems, and I wouldn't say they're all technically Artes's fault, I think there has to be some more responsibility taken by Edu as well because we've hardly heard from the technical director. But, yeah, nothing seemed to click. It just seems bad deals all over the place. And if we somehow end up qualifying for the Europa Conference League, I might just just turn it all off because I don't know. I don't understand what that competition is there for. I mean, if you're... um, Maybe an Aston Villa or an Everton, maybe. Um, you know, it's it, it. You would be a little bit more excited to get some European football, but I don't see how that's supposed to cover the costs of people that you would need to bring in to keep the three games a week schedule going. Um, so there's apparently a load of players up for sale by the end of the season it'll be interesting to see who goes um but yeah it does need to clear out so so far this podcast two clubs i cover closely everton and sevilla sevilla being compared to saint mirren and everton being compared to aston villa not a good start not a good start <laughs> um but i actually have a a, a, a granite jacka rule would you believe it because i remember watching jacka play for switzerland against ireland live and he looked like Kevin De Bruyne, genuinely, because the standard was what it was, and he just stood out. He looked phenomenal, and I, ever since then, I've always thought, you know, be careful how you judge players because you know the drop off from the elite elite to the elite to the below elite is really significant. You know, I mean, like the top players are playing at an incredibly high level, um, and the players who aren't even maybe one of the best players in the league are still very, very, very good. Um, without a doubt, very interesting. But just on Arteta, because I mean, like, you know, Martin Odegaard was his man. He was ineffectual against Villarreal. Um, Willian was very much his man. Not a cheap signing by any means uh, regarding a sign fee and wages. Thomas Partey was his signing. Like, I know that a lot of the Arsenal's issues are structural and are kind of years in the making in many ways. But how much do you think comes down to Edu and Mikel Arteta? 
And I mean, a lot of, I saw a lot of Arsenal fans across social media maybe kind of turning against Arteta specifically a little bit. Do you think that he's coming under any pressure? Or do you think that he's the right man to steer Arsenal through this mire and kind of take them back to where they believe they should be? Oh, um, do I think he's the right, the right man? I think he's the only man in the club with a bit of backbone. I think at the start, the transfer window in summer was a little bit odd. Um, he said William was his man, but the amount of money and the agents, uh, Kia Jorbachan, all the animosity surrounding that with um, Raul Sané just... I think was a little bit too off, and maybe he was put under to do to do that deal. Um, I kind of didn't disagree with the William deal at the start because I thought we needed a kind of backup um, in that position. He's experienced. He was always hit and miss in Chelsea, but more of a hit. So I thought he would just kind of slot in. Um, obviously, I was wrong especially for the money paid for him. I don't know why. And the, the money and the contract, I'm not sure why exactly that was ever done. And then when it comes, Odegaard, I still think is a good fit, a great fit. I think against Villarreal, um, the kind of tactics was too wrong. You couldn't get the ball fast enough from party to him, the front four. And it just didn't really work. Um, and I still think Erdegaard's good enough and a good fit enough. And if we manage to somehow keep him, I think that would be a really great signing instead. When it comes to Thomas Partey, um, I know he's Arteta's man, Arteta's signing wanted him, but I'm wondering, especially in quite a few of these transfers, and it's not only under Arteta, this is banned for years. But I wonder, like, does Arsenal even have a recruitment team? Like, a proper recruitment scouting development team at all? Because if I can see that Thomas Party is not a fit for the Arsenal team for the money, why on earth did that club, who's supposed to be one of the biggest clubs and a well-run club, ever think of that he would fit? I'm not quite Super sure. Club. Yeah, it, it, it's honestly baffling. You see the processes that it takes to sign players. Say a manager sees the name of a person, you look, they get their recruitment team to look into the stats, the data, to see if he's a good fit, see if it can be done, his contract, the money behind it. Because this is stuff I have to do. How have they just gone... Yeah, he'll do for that money. And I don't understand it. And when you compare it to other clubs, um, like, especially in the case of Liverpool, I know they, are in, they have slightly um, some kind of contract problems now, and especially if they want to move on from players, they're in a little bit more of a sticky spot. However, in the last few years, the way that they got Salah, Mane, Van Dijk, okay, Van Dijk was expensive. Especially Salah, Mane, to an extent, Oxley Chamberlain for us. They're not completely outrageous fees for players. They're experienced in the Premier League and they fit. And 
Arsenal have struggled to do just that um, through quite a lot of years, but especially since uh, Arsene Wenger left. There's no kind of responsibility. There's no kind of logic being done throughout the club. Um, the, there's rumours at the moment that like Bernd Leno has been offered a deal somewhere and wants to leave. And then it's like, so why did we sell Emmy Martinez? You know, it's just things like that. If you see the transfers that have come well, like Tierney, okay, not Premier League experience, but top two of the Scottish League, Young can easily be brought up. Those were more of the signings. Now we're relying on Saka, Smith-Rowe, the younger Hell-End guys, and... That's how Arsene Wenger used to do it if he didn't have anyone else. And I've seen a real lack of integrated young talent being used when they're better than the senior. The seniors or if the seniors have let them down. And it just seems a bit of a... It just seems completely up the wall at the moment. Definitely. Um, I guess you and Amir Varas are one club that aren't using the resources correctly. The same can't be levelled against Villarreal. I mean, I know you were at the first leg at La Ceramica. Uh, really great result for them, the first European final in their history. Um, when Emery getting the best out of a quite talented bunch of players, but regarding budget uh, and all that kind of thing, they're nowhere near um, an Arsenal or a Manchester United or even a Roma in many ways. Uh, what do you make of the two legs from a Villarreal perspective and what do you think uh, they can expect going into the final against Manchester United? Yeah, I mean, just what an achievement it is from them, you know, tiny tiny little city, you know, 50,000 people, we've all heard the story, they could all, the entire city could have gone to the Emirates and there would still probably have been space for social distancing, 10,000 extra seats, so really impressive what they've done there by, you know, signing good talent, signing your Jared Moreno's, your Danny Perico's, but getting them on, on good value deals and signing players who fit. Um, they've done so such good work as well with the academy, bringing through through guys like Paul Torres. The two legs, I mean, really, I think Villarreal should have had it wrapped up after the first leg. The first leg, they were so much better. Weirdly, they just didn't quite know how to respond to uh, Ceballos getting sent off, and you know that's partly on Emery. But yeah, they were they were so much better. They should have they should have wrapped it up there, and then they didn't. They went to the second leg, and you know afterwards, everybody in Spain was happy for Villarreal. You know. It was a you know, real good news story for, for La Liga. Um, and the narrative was a little bit, well, you know, they defended so well, like Arsenal actually didn't have that many chances. I mean, they did suffer a lot. I mean, Aubameyang hit the post twice. I think Rob Holden had two really good headers that, that both went wide. I mean, they were clinging on a little bit at the end. Um, but over the two legs, I think they were the better team. They um, should have, as I said, wrapped up after the first leg, suffered a bit in the second, managed to hold on and yeah, they go and face Man United, and just for another comparison, Villarreal's first ever uh, season in La Liga in the top division was 98-99. That's the same year Man United won the treble, so um, these are two clubs from different universes. Um, but yeah, Villarreal over the last 20 years have, have really progressed, and let's see let's see if they can if they can do it. I mean, it's going to be a monumental ask, but um, they've made it this far, and... Uh, uh, yeah, now they've got that solely that to look at over the rest of the season. 
Quick double question for you, Ewan. Um, first off, Pau Torres, do you think he'll stay at Villarreal this summer? And if not, where do you think he could go? Very highly talented uh, centre-back, um, 24 years old, very, very good player. And then also, who do you fancy for the Europa League places in Spain? Because, I mean, uh, Villarreal are currently six, but they're competing against Celta Vigo yesterday afternoon. That's 4-2 um, at home. Uh, Betis are playing this evening against Granada and if they win they go on 44, 54 points two points clear of Villarreal Villarreal dropped to 7th so then you've La Real Real Sociedad on 56 Villarreal on 52 but Real Betis on 54 heading into the final three games who would you fancy for the Europa League spots in Spain? Yeah I mean that's the thing so the top seven all go, all go into Europe um, it's just a matter of who gets Europa League and who gets um, as Jan was ex- explaining, the 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 Conference League uh, nightmare that um, it can really bring to your summer if you have to try and prepare for this tournament. That, as you say, Jasmine, no one really knows what it's going to be like, how it's going to be work, or what the point is, unless you're in Everton. So um, teams are trying to avoid that, but at the same time, it gets a bit complicated because if Villarreal win the uh, Europa League, they go into Champions League, and then um, fifth and sixth go to Europa League, and then nobody else goes to anything then Spain wouldn't have a, a conference league team so um, uh, someone who covers um, Spanish football I guess I really have to hope for that and then I don't have to even watch the conference league at all so we'll see what happens I think the three teams you mentioned there though Alan uh, Betis, Real Sofidad and, and Villarreal they're so uh, far ahead at this stage of the chasing pack you know Celta Vigo Atletic are, are there they've, they've done well but I mean four or five points is still um, a decent amount to try and claw back at this stage so I think those teams will go in it's just a matter of what order they do so and um, yeah maybe Villarreal do get a bit distracted by the 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 Europa League final and fall into seventh which would mean they'd go to Conference League if they don't win it but uh, I think that's um, a bet they're willing to take because uh, yeah this is this is an opportunity not just about what tournament you play next year but um, to actually win a win a trophy, which is you know something that we heard watching the 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 second leg against Arsenal was you know this is Arsenal's chance to qualify for Europe. I mean, yeah, that's important, but it's also a big trophy, and that's that's important too. And then just on Paul Torres, I mean, yeah, he's he's such a talent. I do think he'll stay at Villarreal. I think he sees that the project there is is obviously on the right track. Um, you know, reached a final, it would be a weird time to walk away. But at some point, surely he's going to go, um, if not to one of the top Premier League clubs, maybe to, to one of the top sides in Spain, maybe to Atletico Madrid, because they do have a knack for signing Villarreal players. That's uh, often the next step in stone from there. We've seen so many over the years, you know, from Forlan to Godin to, to Rodri more recently. So, um, yeah, but I think he stays for another season because, remember, he's not just from the academy. He's one of the 50,000 people from that city. So... Um, for him, it means more, you know. Yeah, definitely, definitely. I think in two for centre back, you know, when you're 24, 25, it's imperative to be playing week in, week out, you know, and be kind of an undisputed starter. And he's starting for La Roja now as well, coming to the European Championship. So I think working under a coach like Unai Emery, similarly to Jules Koundé at Sevilla, working under a coach like Julien Lapetegui, I think they both realise they're in a good place for development right now. And while they're confident they'll move a come, I don't think they're in a rush to, to force it through. Although I guess the fact that maybe Isamandi is coming in the summer from Betis on a free, do you think that, how will that work? I mean, like, you've Raul Albeal, Pau Torres and Isamandi. Who would you say is the top first choice uh, starting pair of those three? 
I think that's a good problem to have, really, because that's that's something that Villarreal haven't had this season. Um, they've had Juan Foyfs come in, but he's kind of been used in every position other than centre-back. And then after that, it's Funes Mori. It's, um, there's a real drop-off to the other, other centre-backs. So I think it's not so much uh, bringing Isamandi in because they're looking or expecting to replace someone. I think they just realise that we need a good third centre-back, especially if we're going to be playing in, in Europe again. So... Um, in terms of who starts, mm, that's a that's a good question. Probably still that Raul Albiol and Paul Torres uh, pairing, but maybe with more rotation than they've been able to do this season because, well, they just haven't really been able to to give either of them much of a rest. Big fan of that pairing. Like father and son, aren't they? The two of them. Very good pair. Um, John, uh, mainly the only thing left in England to discuss really is the Champions League race and the Europa League race as well, of course. And as Jasmine has mentioned, the godforsaken conference league place um very very tight there i mean chelsea 64 leicester 63 west ham on 58 liverpool on 57 spurs on 56 everton on 55 and then arsenal on 52 leeds on 50 really really tight in the top 10 you could say um or maybe not top 10 but from uh third to 10 some interesting results for the weekends. Obviously, Leicester lost 2-4 to Newcastle at home. A bit of a shock. Uh, Leeds went and beat Spurs 3-1 to really kind of open open up space there and put the cat amongst the pigeons. They were beating Southampton 2-0. Uh, West Ham coming from behind to beat Burnley uh, 2-1 and then losing to the mighty Everton, who are much relying on this episode for some reason. 1-0 on uh, Sunday evening, thanks to Dominic Calvert-Lewin. Uh, Golazzo, you could say. Uh, what did you make of this week's Premier League action and who do you think will be occupying place three and four come the end of the season and also that Europa League spot? Um, I know we've discussed it in the past how uh, we reckon, well, last week at least you reckon that the four who are there now will be the four come the end of the season. Has your opinion changed in any way? Do you think that things are opening up? What's your, uh, what's your take? I've kind of pivoted from that because of uh, because of Leicester's performances and results. Uh, in the four two defeat to Newcastle, they were absolutely abject. They were four 0 down to what anybody would tell you, even if Newcastle slant is a very poor team, and they were getting ripped apart constantly on the counter attack with a uh, McMahon really pro- uh, pre- prevalent. And uh, yeah, so that's really put the cat amongst the pigeons because if you look at Leicester's fixtures, they have Man United, they have Chelsea, and they have Spurs left. Now there could be there could be a scenario where they play Chelsea with Chelsea needing to win to guarantee to tie up uh, top four. So you, that's something that they would definitely look to do, despite the fact that you know they have a Champions League final and an FA Cup final actually against the same opposition, and there may be a temptation to rest players. So that's going to be far from an easy game. And then they also play Spurs, and you know Spurs are hot and cold, but they they have the ability to make it a tough game for anybody. But what might help them? And now we're getting into this part of the season where it's going to be all these different kind of permutations and kind of doing a lot of arithmetic and melting gymnastics before games. Is that they play Manchester United this upcoming Tuesday? But of course, because of the protests at Old Trafford last Sunday, the Manchester United's game with Liverpool has been rearranged for the Thursday. So Man United play two games in two days effectively. So you're thinking that United, just because of their disdain for Liverpool and, you know, it's justified their rivals, will probably rest a lot of players uh, against Leicester in advance of the Liverpool game, which, you know, in terms of sports science as well as the obvious move to make. 
So that presents Leicester with an opportunity to probably win a game that otherwise I don't think they would win. So that that that's kind of where that's kind of where all these different complications and permutations come into play. So I find it very hard to call. But certainly because of Liverpool's win against Southampton, they they beat them 2-0 on Saturday night. And actually Mohamed Salah and Sadio Mane combined for the first goal they've scored. They've scored as a combination since June of 2020, would you believe? So they haven't combined for a goal in almost an entire calendar year. That puts Friend Liverpool in a, Yeah, it's, it, it's crazy. It puts Liverpool in a really uh, advantageous position because they have a game in hand on both Leicester and West Ham. And should they win that, which is obviously not a given because their record at Old Trafford is, is, is horrendous. But should they win that, they'd only be three points behind Leicester with a really favourable run-in. So it's going to get very tight and it's going to be really interesting between now and the end of the season to see who comes in the top four. Because like you mentioned, everything else in the league is settled. If Fulham lose to Burnley tonight, they're officially relegated and they join West Brom and Sheffield United in the Championship next season. And obviously the title is just one win away from Manchester City, which they'll get sooner rather than later. So yeah, that, that's going to be a, a really interesting one. But uh, I'd be very nervous if I was a Leicester if I was a Leicester supporter, you know, just citing last season how they crumbled at the death. And even just looking at their underlying numbers, they're kind of o- overperforming a little bit. And you just wonder if the XG ghosts will come back to haunt them and they'll fall back into maybe a position in the table that's more in line with their performances over the course of the season. So it's it's going to be really interesting. Um, I find it hard to trust Liverpool, despite the fact they're on a six-game unbeaten run. It it doesn't feel like that. But despite the fact they're on a six-game unbeaten run, I would just find it hard to trust Liverpool to win all of their remaining games. So even though the fact of the matter is they'll be playing three teams that nothing tangible to play for, they'll be playing the already relegated West Brom, They'll be playing uh, Burnley, who should be have nothing tangible to play for, and the same with Crystal Palace. Just given their record against the low-lying teams, you'd find it very hard to trust them. So by dint of that, West Ham or Leicester might have a chance to uh, steal that fourth spot because I don't see anybody except Chelsea finishing third. I think they have too much quality and too much wind in their sails for them to fall anywhere below third. So it's going to be a really interesting uh, climax of the Premier League season in regards to top four race. And I find it really difficult. I find it really difficult to call, but I just wonder, is the battle scars that le- from last season for Leicester City going to open up again? And will they, and will they fall out for the second season in concession, which, you know, would be, disastrous in some perspective but at the end of the day i mean in terms of budget in terms of prestige in terms of history i mean Leicester even coming in fifth or sixth is still a great result yeah i mean fifth the table the form guide i agree with you i think that from chelsea down you expect chelsea to finish third because of their form and just the way they're playing at the moment but then like of the chasing packs you know if you include Leicester, west ham liverpool spurs everton then liverpool are in the best form uh, do you think that if Liverpool finish the season with strength, say win their final four games, or at least remain unbeaten for those final four games, and you especially given that Thiago scored his first goal for the club at the weekend, do you think that you know with some clever moves in the summer, uh, you can enter next season with positivity and write off this one as a freak caused by injury, or do you think that there are some deeper problems that are maybe causing you a bit of concern? I think there will be some residual scarring from the season. It's been such a slog for the Liverpool players and the staff, both on and off the pitch. But like they're going to improve, I'm not going to say tenfold, but they're going to improve significantly with the return of Virgil van Dijk. 
because obviously he's a fantastic defender, but it's just the intangibles he brings in terms of leadership, in terms of presence, in terms of having an aura. So as much as you can't measure it, that is a factor that's going to be big in Liverpool's favour. Um, one play, one area where I think it's going to be more difficult is that Chelsea inevitably are going to improve the preseason under Thomas Tuchel. Manchester United are probably going to strengthen it again, and Man City are just going to be where they are. So, and then obviously Tottenham with a new coach could could improve as well because there's a bones of a very good team there. So, not yeah, if Harry Kane goes. Well, yeah, that's the thing. But is there a market for him? We see in this COVID kind of depressed. Uh, financial world of football it, it's hard to say but if it was normal times I would envision him going but yeah certainly um, I think yeah they do need to make some clever moves in the market I don't think they will have that much money to play with unless they sell someone but that ties into again what I was saying about Kane there might necessarily be the market for these massive players to move because you know the lack of the lack of finance a lot of clubs are taking a hammering on the balance sheets in terms of their finances so uh, what happens with that remains to be seen sometimes you expect you know, football to kind of face the realities of the real world and it doesn't happen. I remember Real Madrid's 2009 uh, transfer window and that was in the midst of the global recession. I thought there's no way a football club could do that, but no, they can and they often do. So uh, let's see what happens with that. But certainly Liverpool will improve a lot next season. I think the summer will will give us some of them the chance to refresh, uh, not all of them, because Salah is going to the Olympics, there's going to be a Copa America, and there's going to be a Euros. So in that regard, they won't have maybe as much as much time to recover as they would have. But I think it might just be good for some of those guys to be able to get out of the bubble they've been in for the best part of a year and to kind of recharge their batteries. And no more so than even for Klopp, who, you know, obviously his mother died, he wasn't able to go home and grieve her and all that. So... You know, sometimes I think we kind of treat these people like they're robots, but at the end of the day, they have the same feelings and emotions as normal people. So, yeah, I think they will improve, but I think so will a lot of other teams. So it will make it very difficult, again, to be title challengers, I think. Yeah, that that window from Madrid was incredible. I mean, Kaká, Xabi Alonso, Cristiano Ronaldo, Karim Benzema, incredible, incredible activity, really, when you look back, the, those names, you know. I got Adiol um, as well, I think. Yeah, yeah, it was remarkable, absolutely remarkable. But um, just we'll touch on the title race in Spain in a second, Ewan, but just first I want to touch on two other storylines. Uh, you've written the book on Ibar, quite literally. Uh, they looked like they were downing out before this weekend. Uh, they're rock bottom, and they're still rock bottom, but they're only a point behind Elche in 19th and a point behind Huesca in 18th, two points behind Valdez in 17th, three points behind Alaves in 16th, and five points behind Hitafe in 15th, heading into the final three games of the season. They've won two games in the bounce now uh, um, after the 3-0 win last week. They went and beat uh, Hitafe 1-0 in Hitafe at the weekend. Um, do you reckon they could pull off a very, very unlikely escape, or do you reckon it's just too late in the day? I mean, it's still very, very unlikely, but yeah, they've given themselves a chance now. They're, they're one win away. There's enough teams in that battle that, I mean, there's really six six teams in it from from Hitafe in 15th um, down to Ibar in 20th. That's the six teams who who could go down and they're separated by five points. So there's enough teams there that could slip up. What's interesting is on Tuesday we've got um, Elche against Alaves. But apart from that, there's no other head-to-head games between that bottom six over the last three rounds of La Liga. It's all going to be how do they do against the teams trying to get into Europe, the teams in the title race. And I guess that maybe goes in Ibar's favour because they do 
uh, tend to show up against uh, teams that come at them. And uh, the season's been a bad season. It's been a difficult season. The squad hasn't uh, really been there from the start. Every summer they lose uh, their best players and they just haven't really recovered from that. So, um, yeah, it would be a miracle if they managed to do it. But they've given themselves a chance. It'll be interesting. And on the final day, um, just to make it even more uh, interesting if they if they're still alive, they host Barcelona, who might be trying to win the league. So um, that could certainly be an interesting one if if uh, Ibar still have it all to play for, and they take on Barcelona, who are also going for the league, or perhaps Barcelona, who already can't win it. So um, we've seen stranger things, but um, certainly going to be interesting, not just for the the Ibar angle, but just because, like I said, six teams there, so bunched together. Um, any of them could go down any of them could stay up at this point Absolutely one team who won't be going down is Valencia after they beat Real Valladolid 3-0 uh, to confirm their mathematical safety from relegation this season uh, Javi Gracia left Valencia sort of, sort of course. Of. It's still not mathematical but yeah they're 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 pretty much safe now Oh I thought it was mathematical no, um, no but, but it would take oh. a miracle at this point but Okay, but um, obviously there are Javi Gracia less uh, Valencia, um, given he was sacked last Monday. Uh, there was massive protests that uh, our friend Paco Pollitt attended and covered on Saturday afternoon and evening against Peter Lim and the Valencia board. Uh, he gave some pretty controversial comments in a Financial Times interview on Thursday where he referred to the club basically as no one of his businesses um, and said he likes it because it gives him kind of a ability to network with other kind of high value, high worth individuals. Um, what do you make of what's going on at Valencia both on and off the pitch? I mean, they've really slid into sporting mediocrity in terms of their league performance, but also in terms of the way they manage their squad and the way they manage their resources. It's really a sad sight, isn't it? Yeah, it is. I mean, it's a big club. And, and like you say, they've slid into, into uh, you know, mid-table nothingness, you know, but they're only going in one direction. You know, just a few years ago, they were in the Champions League. They qualified fourth two years in a row. They won the Copa del Rey. And since then, they've, they've slipped down to, like you say, um, into into mid-table, into, into a sort of purgatory. But if they keep going in this direction, then maybe next year they really are right in the thick of the relegation battle. Maybe in a couple of years, they actually do go down. It's You wonder what it will take for, for the board to realise that you can't just sell your players every summer and sell them for peanuts to Villarreal, to City, to Leeds, to whoever comes asking with the first offer. So um, maybe they do need some sort of um, moment for the, the board, the owners, the the people making the decisions to, to change things. And maybe this is it. The fans protesting. Um, they're, they've had a bunch of actions over recent months. They've found out all of, Peter Lim's other businesses that are going on leaving hilarious uh, Google Maps reviews for his other businesses, things like this. Mm, maybe this kind of action does get something done, but um, I think it's going to take a moment, a sort of a realisation that they need to change their approach, spend some money, sell the club, whatever they have to do, because, okay, this season they'll finish in mid-table, they'll be fine, but if it keeps going in this direction... Um, it's only going to get more difficult. It's only going to get more difficult to recruit if you're a club that just is not going in the right direction. So, yeah, sad to see. Um, we'll see what they do in the summer. Obviously, they need to hire a new coach as well. 
um, yeah, just a bit of a mess of a situation at the moment. Absolutely. Um, we touched on title race a bit earlier with Madrid, but um, Barcelona obviously drew nil all with Atletico Madrid in Camp Nou on Saturday afternoon. Uh, Sevilla lost 1-0 to Athletic Club last Monday evening uh, to kind of almost put them out of the title race only for you know the draw at the weekend to maybe change things again, although it's obviously highly unlikely given their positioning at the moment. But you know the state of play heading into the final three games is Atletico are on 77, Madrid on 75, Barca on 75, Sevilla on 71. So say if you're realistically considered the top three as being in with a serious chance of winning, I mean, like, it's so tight, like, the final three games. Um, like I said earlier, I, I can't see any of those teams winning all of their games. Um, what do you make of this game, first of all, in terms of Atletico Barca uh, as a spectacle? And how do you feel heading into the final stretch from a kind of neutral perspective from all all sides? How do you think things are going to go? Yeah, I mean, it was no nil, but it was it was good fun. There was um, there was a few good chances for for both teams. Uh, both teams going for it. I think many people expected Simeone to go and set up and play for a draw, but um, he didn't do that. He was he was quite bold, quite aggressive, and the first half in particular, Atletico were the better team by far. Um, Barcelona made a few adjustments uh, for the second half. Who uh, can Mingueza for Ronald Araujo was one of them. And Barcelona were back in the second half, but couldn't quite get that get that winner. So no, no, it's a much better result for Atletico than for Barcelona. At the time, everyone said this is a great result for Real Madrid. True, it was, um, but still a good result for Atletico because they stay ahead of Barcelona and they keep the tiebreaker over Barcelona. Remember, in La Liga, if it's level on points, it's not goal difference; it's your head-to-head record. So they have that over uh, Barcelona, but they don't have it against Real Madrid, and that's what. That's what makes Real Madrid's last-minute equaliser so important. The Cruz Hazard deflection lucky goal so important because now it means Atletico, assuming Real Madrid win all their games, Atletico need to win all their games. If they do that, they're champions. But if Cruz hadn't uh, scored that goal, if they'd actually lost to Sevilla, then Atletico could have won the league with just seven points from their their final nine. Now they need to go and win them all. Um, But... Like you say, I mean, you can see everyone dropping points, but I do actually think Atletico can go and do it. I think they've come through the hardest part of this of the season. They've now got Real Sociedad at home. Uh, is Real Sociedad their good team? But it is at home. They should be winning that. Then they've got Osasuna at home. Osasuna, who have nothing to play for at this point. And then on the final day, they play away at Valladolid. Um, they'll be in the relegation battle. Um, they probably will still have something to play for. But to be honest, maybe that comes to... Atletico's advantage because Valladolid's the kind of team that can sit back and squeeze and scrape a nil-nil out of you but if they have to attack maybe win their game uh, they might leave space in behind for Atletico to exploit so um, yeah it's in Atletico's hands game by game if they beat Real Sociedad Osasuna and Real Valladolid they're champions I actually think they can win all three of those games in a row um, and if they don't then, then maybe they don't deserve to be so uh, we'll see how they do um, starting with uh, Real Sociedad on Wednesday Absolutely and from a Barcelona perspective I mean a bit of a talk about Koeman these last few days that maybe his position isn't as strong this summer as it was thought it was maybe a few months ago um, I think he admitted himself today that there'll, there'll be talks at the end of the season about next season and the future going forward uh, Lionel Messi too his future is up in the air I mean I personally get the feeling like he's maybe leaning towards staying more than going but I mean nobody knows but him right it's kind of impossible to tell 
Uh, but what's your take on Barcelona's future this summer? I mean, obviously we spoke about Madrid's future this summer and it's up in the air. Atletico may be more settled, but how do you see Barcelona shaping up over the coming months? Yeah, I mean, the main difference is, of course, that Real Madrid have Florentino Perez as president as they have had since, you know, um, 2007, um, or 2009, rather. Um, at, um, Barcelona, they've got Joan Laporta, who's come back in. So they have new leadership. This will be his first transfer window, his first chance to do things. If he does want to change the coach, this is the time to do it. He was never going to come and sack Coleman um, halfway through the season. Um, and yeah, Joan Laporta is, is not going to sit there and, and be passive. He's going to be proactive. We've already seen him um, making moves, uh, meeting with Mino Raiola, for example, meeting with the city council about what to do with the stadium, potentially playing at Montjuic, the Olympic Stadium, for a couple of years, things like that. He's a busy guy right now. He's planning many things. And I think it's a case that in Laporta's office, he has a few uh, files, plan A, plan B, plan C, plan D. I think he has many options of what to do. A lot of it depends on certain things like, does Messi stay, does he not stay? Can we get player X, can we not? Um, but I think Laporte is the kind of guy that will have enough backup plans that there will be big change. Um, but yeah, as with Real Madrid, I mean, I think it is just time to focus on the league. It is only two more weeks. Um, there are three huge games. Anyone can win it. It would be silly to to put distractions in front of your, your own club at this point. Um, just wait till till it's all over on May 23rd it's, it's just a couple of weeks away Absolutely no flies on Joanne Laporte that's for sure um, there's no title race in Germany anymore Jasmine it's all over uh, Bayern Munich are champions uh, for the ninth consecutive time they're 10 points clear of Leipzig um, and they seal the deal with a 6-0 uh, rollicking of Borussia Mönchengladbach who've really fallen off quite a cliff haven't they they're in 7th place now uh, what do you make of this game? What do you make of Bayern's campaign? And what do you make of the pain that Bruce and Michel Gladbach are going through since Marco Rosa announced he was leaving the club? Uh, the game was, as you can imagine, pretty one-sided. Um, yeah, there wasn't much in it, if anything, really. They had they were clinical on their game. Lewandowski, who only recently came back from injury against um, their 2-1 loss to Mainz, uh, not last week, the week before, because there was no Bundesliga last week. Um, he still got a goal in that game. I think everyone's now looking about Lewandowski beating Gerd Müller's 40-goal uh, season record. Um, and he has come close to it. Everyone was fearing that he was going to miss out on matching that record but he scored a hat-trick against Mönchengladbach and now he's one goal away in two more games to match it obviously two goals to break it um but their whole campaign has been it's been different um they've struggled in defense um I think that's kind of the case of loads of um, German teams at the moment there's been a lack of defensive structure across the board apart from Nagelsmann and Glasner from Wolfsburg obviously Nagelsmann is by Munich's um, manager next season so hopefully he'll instill more of a defensive structure to, to more of what they used to be pre-COVID um, it's been close at times but people who don't realise this is that Bayern Munich ha- has had close encounters in past seasons 
Um, last season, before the COVID break, the race at the top was a lot closer than people remember. That COVID um, break kind of gave a lot of it gave it a lot of more management for Bayern Munich and the squad sides that they had to come really come back and win everything. And this year we didn't really have that. There's been just so much going on. Um, so it has been close and Leipzig did fare as were the rivals if they do finish second. And But um, also this weekend we had Dortmund versus Leipzig, which we'll see again on Thursday for the DFB Pokal final. Um, Dortmund won 3-2 and Leipzig could have easily won that game, but they were missing a a top quality strike to finish off their chances, which has been pretty much the kind of note of the season for Leipzig. Um, what we've only got in Germany now is um, the top four race. It's gotten really interesting. Wolfsburg's on 60 points, Dortmund's on 58, Frankfurt's on 57. Um, basically, if Dortmund win their next two games in hand and they're the most informed team at the moment, um, they will qualify for Champions League, which could have massive implications. But um, especially surrounding Jaden Sancho and Holland staying at Dortmund. But Bayern Munich thumped Gladbach 6-0 and Marco Rose is the manager of München Gladbach. Obviously, he'll be joining Dortmund next season. But there's a bit more whispers about worry. It's just kind of worrying whispers about Marco Rosa at the moment. You know, Gladbach have fallen off a cliff um, since he announced it, but if you look at some of the stats um, regarding his principles of play, he's supposed to be this high-intensive counter-attacking team, and he just doesn't offer that at the moment at all. He, They are awful in trying to play out that tactic to a point where one Gladbach um, fan site said um, this isn't modern football it smells of simple-mindedness and overconfidence and it kind of describes what he is at the moment and more Dortmunds are getting worried about his appointment Um, so it will be interesting to see what happens there. Absolutely. You mentioned Wolfsburg. They beat Union Berlin 3-0 uh, to kind of maybe take th- third spot for now. But I was really struck by how interesting the Dortmund-Leipzig game was because, I mean, like Leipzig are obviously entering a very important summer of transition too um, because you've, you know, Ben Camo is leaving the club to go to Bayern. Uh, Ibrahim Kunate is maybe going to Liverpool, as has been rumoured. Obviously, you have Nagelsmann leaving to go to Bayern as well. Like, is there kind of a summer of reckoning for them because they're missing, they're losing the, the coach, obviously, who's highly, highly valued, highly important. Um, like, are they going to regress next season, do you think? And then simultaneously, do you think that Dortmund's run where they're on five games uh, consecutively won on the bounce, they're in really, really good form. Um, as you mentioned, two lads, uh, specific, specifically Haaland and Sancho, um, are kind of you know, maybe key to their hopes for next season if they can retain them, um, or at least one of them. Do you think that the way Dortmund are ending the season will stand them in good stead for next year? Uh, and do you think that the way Leipzig are ending the season in terms of you know maybe just with a bit of fear and 
given that they're losing who they are losing this summer, will that negatively impact them next season? Do you think they'll have struggle to kind of, you know, gather up and go again, given they're losing such key figures? I think Leipzig do have uh, a pro with Jesse Marsh coming in from Salzburg because there's so many players from Leipzig who have recently come over from Salzburg. Uh, Marsh will have quite a few, um, quite a bit of a basis for his team to go ahead um, but I do see them regressing because I don't think I think Marsh isn't the perfect fit for them, and they might go back to what they were before Nagelsmann. I don't think it's exactly down to personnel, and I still think they could be Champions League challenges. But I don't think anyone comes close to Nagelsmann in that position to get them into a final. Um, you know, two pl- uh, player fixtures in the Champions League consecutively. Um, and, yeah, in where they are right now. Um, Dortmund, it's a little bit interesting because their next game, they've got the hardest two games left compared to Wolfsburg. And actually, Wolfsburg's quite hard. I mean, Eintracht Frankfurt. And Dortmund have to go away to Mainz, which I've sung their praises. They've been absolutely brilliant since both Svensson's come in and beat Bayern Munich last week. Um so there's still a chance Dortmund don't end well and lose pretty much the stability that they've got. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot to play in the last two games, but I can see Dortmund and uh, and um, Leipzig actually slightly losing pace from this season. Unless Dortmund finish fifth, and then I think that's a, a roundabout where they might end next season. Depends how long they keep Marco Rose in the job. Do you think that if they do finish fourth and get Champions League football next season, will they make a point of not selling both Sancho and Haaland? And do you think that if they sell, they'll only sell one? Or do you think they won't sell any? Or do they sell both? Or what do you think is going to happen? I, I honestly think if they make Champions League, there's a good chance of them keeping both. But more of a chance that they keep Haaland instead of Sancho. I think Man United are trying to go all into that to better themselves for next season. Um, I think there's more of a possibility where Haaland's a little more, um, a little less willing to go straight away. Kind of like Sancho last season. Um, They would have let him go for the money. Man United didn't stump up the money, but Sancho was happy enough to stay for that one more year. So I can see that kind of happening to Haaland. But I do wonder if anyone's got doubts in their mind by playing for under Marco Rosa. I don't think they will, but I think if they um, aren't in the Champions League or Marco Rosa does do badly next season, I can see that kind of creeping into their heads to leave sooner. Absolutely. Very interesting summer. All around, I guess, all European football, there's lots of changes in the offing, but uh, sure to keep things interesting and refresh for next season. But just to finish up, guys, just to ask you all for your social media handles and also your moment of the week. Um, mine is at Azulfili on Twitter. And my moment of the week is actually twofold. That's just two. Uh, one is Dominic Averloon scoring that goal against West Ham. I thought that, you know, normally most of his goals this season have been headers or scuffed finishes at the back post, proper strikers finishes, whereas this was the goal of real top-class centre-forward. I think it's, it, it doesn't go for his confidence given that he hasn't scored as many goals recently as he had in the middle of the season, you could say. And then also, even Rakitic's performances uh, against Madrid last night, uh, he was cold-blooded for the first goal, 
took it down really well, played it to uh, Fernando, uh, Fernando Regis, the CBA centre midfielder, and then converted the penalty uh, later on with similar cold bloodedness. So very, very impressive performance for him and from Sevilla as well. Uh, John, what's your social handle and what's your moment of the week? My social handle is at NotoriousJOS on Twitter. And my moment of the week can only be one thing. It has to be Wes Houlihan drinking a pint of Guinness on the pitch after Cambridge United sealed their promotion from League 2 into League 1. I mean, there's just so much to like about it. Number one, he's drinking lovely, lovely stout. And, you know, anyone with a bit of taste would agree that it's the king of uh, alcoholic beverages. And he is uh, a talented left Irish footballer. We don't have many of those. So when you combine all those things, it's a beautiful, beautiful package. And uh, uh, that's my moment of the week and probably even my moment of the season, I would venture to say. Yeah, you can't be silky playmakers and creamy pints. There's no better combination in the world for me. Uh, Ewan, what's your social and what's your moment of the week? Um, yeah, my Twitter is at emcteer, and I mentioned it already, but the moment of the week is that penalty drama where um, not even just the, the two penalties in the Real Madrid and Sevilla game, but the moment the referee leaves the VAR monitor, walks back onto the pitch, and you know he's about to point to one of the spots, and that moment where does he point left, does he point right, um, that's uh, I've never seen that before, and it was a lot of fun, very pantomime-esque. I was watching it in the bar here in Seville and um, got quite the reception, I'll tell you that. Um, Jasmine, what's your social and what's your moment of the week? You can find me on Twitter at underscore Jasmine Barber. Um, I have two moments of the week. One is Arsenal relegating uh, a big Sam team because he's despicable. Um, my second one is uh, Leicester City's... Uh, Support services Twitter account accidentally asking all supporters to contact the club by email email or telephone for no particular reason. And then them following up that tweet with, can we just clarify that you only need to contact the club if you have any queries? (laughs) (laughs) The amount of people that started to contact them. I can imagine. That's brilliant. Um, But yeah, listen, guys, thanks so much for joining me. Really appreciate it. Really fascinating discussion from all the action in Europe and England and Germany and Spain as well. Um, that's all for today's episode. Uh, like, share and rate if you enjoyed it. And we'll see you soon. Thanks, guys. Enjoy the weeks of football and uh, chat soon. Ooh.